Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to, as usual, lend us not just your ears, but your only non-renewable resource. And of course, that is your time. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you could be listening to a plethora of podcasts or music, however you spend your time. I'm washing dishes. And if you're like me, you're out walking a dog or having a casual uh, encounter <laughs> in traffic with your with your neighbors. But you chose to be with us today. And I just want to honor that. Thank you for this time. Today, we're going to go into a conversation around not just how one can navigate a successful career path in energy with stops along the way in different size and types of organizations, but at the core, how energy is managed writ large and the opportunities that we have as technology evolves to harness it better for our customers for our, and at our, at our points of load and how the devices are helping do that. We're going to do that through the lens of one of the largest companies in the industry, managing loads for clients and serving the DER market. If you're unfamiliar with DERs, I encourage you to search DER in the Suncast podcast feed and you'll find a few other episodes where we really go down the rabbit hole on what exactly distributed energy resources are. Today's entrepreneur and entrepreneur Matthew Sachs has uh, been working in this space for quite a long time, more than 15 years of proven track record building clean tech businesses. Some of you probably remember him all the way back as I do when I first met him, his days at Gingley Green Energy. Since then, he spent time at K-Road, National Grid, and now a company called C-Power. We'll learn more about C-Power in today's discussion. If this is the kind of thing that you really geek out on and you love learning more about how you can build a career for meaning or a business that has impact in the clean energy economy, you're in the right place. If this is the first time you're here, I want to thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention. I would encourage you to hit that bell or subscribe button or wherever you are, just subscribe like Matthew has already to the podcast. And that will ensure that you get our twice weekly content just like this. Tuesdays are tactical, practical advice and Thursdays are conversations just like this one where we go deep into the executive profile of someone who's making a difference in the industry. We have more than 475 episodes just like this for your listening pleasure over at mysuncast.com or again, right in the podcast player. You're in if statistics are true, more than half of you are in Spotify. The rest of you are probably in Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Stitcher. Doesn't matter. Subscribe and listen. I'm so grateful that you're here. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, as I mentioned, uh, Matthew is a well-known energy veteran, successful track record, both planning, developing, implementing, distributed, and renewable growth strategies for companies that You've probably worked with before, uh, from solar to utility scale, distributed energy resources, DERs. Today, we're going to chat, go down the rabbit hole, as it were, on how to monetize these resources uh, from perhaps one of the companies that's uh, the best at it in the United States right now. Matthew, thanks for joining us on Suncast. 
Hey, well, thanks, Nico. Big, big fan of the show and what you're doing here and really glad to be on and looking forward to the discussion. Man, I am always uh, glad to get a chance to interview someone with as deep and I'd say profound uh, a viewpoint and knowledge of how the industry works. Uh, and in particular, when I get a chance to chat around a topic that gives folks insight into how someone can, I'm going to say like perhaps fall into an industry and really develop a passion for it, which we'll share in a minute. Before we get into kind of how you found your way into Gingli and, and started your path towards the renewable energy sector, did you grow up in a household that had any particular entrepreneurial spirit? Like what was the, what was the conversation like in the household when you were a kid? Yeah, that's that's a great question. It, the, the simple answer is no, but um, but I grew up in a great household, just seemingly uh, fa- fairly mundane, particularly from the entrepreneur vantage point. You know, I was fortunate to grow up in a good time in a good place. Grew up in Brooklyn, born in, in the late seventies. Grew up in the eighties, and both my parents were teachers. Um, nothing was second to education um, throughout my my childhood, which which really built a, a strong foundation that, that served me well, and um, including even high school, where I, I think I learned enough in middle school to, to kind of coast by, which was fun, but maybe not the, uh, the best thing for a, a teenage guy. But yeah. So how did you decide early in life the direction you were going to point what we would come to, be, to call a career as we get older? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I don't, I don't know if I've decided now um, what I want to be when I grow up. But uh, <laughs> I often take things in, in small chunks and, and kind of set my North Star four or five years down the line mm-hmm. and, and kind of build towards that. But, you know, I, I mentioned education was important and it gave me a good foundation. But my father was a big influence. He was always building, drawing, carving something when I was kind of a, a young kid. And it really instilled a, a love to build in me, which which I think kind of translated to a to the business world in the sense that mm-hmm. I really focused most of my career on building new businesses or investing in new businesses that, that are being built. Um, you know, my father also loved games, strategy games like chess, but, but also weird things that you've never heard of like abalone. Um, and, and that really gave me this sense of, of solving puzzles. And if you put that all together and, you know, reflect a little bit, you get back to, hey, you, you like to build and you like to solve puzzles. This, this uh, kid kind of fits me well. Did you study a particular practice? I mean, you know, I know that you spent time in industry and then over at Pricewaterhouse, but were you particularly focused on a certain industry? How did you think about where you want to leave your footprint? Yeah, you know, for me, even if you go back to my business school essays or, or even before that, when I was um, trying to figure out what to, to major in in college, it, it was a lot about wanting to build. And, and I originally majored in engineering because I was like, well, if I want to build something, I have to create something. And I, I think I've learned a lot since then. It certainly takes a village to do all of this, but, but, but that was kind of the, the impetus. I had gone into to school. I think I was undecided my first semester, my second semester, I went into media studies of all things. My third semester, I decided to get um, serious and wanted to do engineering. But I remember my counselor at the time told me, no, no, you're, you're too far off from a credit perspective, go to business. And then I, I don't know, just reflecting that I was like, why, why should I focus on business if I want to do engineering? And that, that got me started. And, and even going past into business school, I, I wrote the essays as I, I wanted to build something new. So I think that part of my life was much more focused on, on finding something to build and, and creating than on, on the environmental part. But that certainly came later. Well, interestingly enough, 
uh, early on, you did start in your career as a design engineer. I started at college as an engineer and always get razzed by one of my best friends because she switched to the business school, but never took the engineering sticker off my window because there was a little bit of a, I don't know, sort of this like bias towards, uh, or maybe embarrassment that I had sort of decided to leave the engineering school. Nevertheless, we end up where we're supposed to be. Um, I do think that the the hybrid skills of engineering and business are among the most potent that someone can possess. How or maybe when did you first meet Robert Petrina? Robert Petrina. Ro- Robert and I were were friends before we worked together. And that we first met God in in our twenties in the bar scene in New York City. Um, I think we were both just young professionals working. But and how did he come to? Uh, play a prominent role in what became your career pivot. Yeah, that's that is what Robert brought me to Solar. Maybe just a quick note on on Robert Petrina is you know myself is I'm certainly indebted to, to what he taught me in kind of my early years here. But but I think he's a name we don't often talk about in Solar. That's done a lot for our sector and brought a lot of good people and, and taught a lot of folks the way. But um, God. You know, post MBA, I was working as a consultant advising mostly like large private equity houses on transactions. And this was around 2007, 2008. And in 2008, the, the world started to change a little bit. Um, and, and these same private equity players were, were more started to come and ask a new question. They used their old question was, who should we buy or what sector should we invest in? Or could you do commercial due diligence? Basically, what is the revenue side risk? But the question started to change to, oh my God, the world's ending. We bought all these firms. What else could we do with them? And I remember one very well. Um, they came to us with an aluminum extruder whose primary revenue was building roof racks for SUVs. And they're like, well, but the auto market's destroyed. What, what else could they do? And we came back, and this is what brought me to solar. We came back and solar is around 2008. And we were looking, you know, reading the tea leaves. We saw a lot of growth and got... I don't think we knew how right we were at the time, but but believed it, pitched it to them, and they went into um, into uh, it. Actually, became a racking manufacturer. I'm not sure if they're still there, but um, at the time, I, I didn't know much about solar, so I read everything, thought I was getting smart. And, you know, in retrospect, I knew nothing, um, but but I also went out and talked to everyone I knew, and and who was it? But Robert Petrina was the only person I could find in this country who could tell me how many dollars of aluminum went into a uh, a panel, and that. That was really helpful, but um, you know, soon after Robert kind of got the 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 nod from Yingli to build their America Solar business. So this was really originally focused on the U.S., but later across uh, both continents. I remember very well. He, he invited me to his roof deck. We had a few beers, and and he asked me to to join him and said, "I really want you to to take the the commercial side of this business." Meaning, like the biz dev sales side. Sales and, and then later sales operations and operations yeah. for, for those aren't familiar were mostly logistics, really. Right. Um, yeah, you know, I, I promptly said, no way. And I don't think I had told anyone at the time. I was like, I haven't told anyone, but I have my first kid on the way. I have this nice, stable job paying as well. And for those of you who might know Robert, he, he's quite convincing. Um, and, and I also really believed in the prospect of business. So I remember walking out of there, no, and it was just bothering me for days. And a few, few days later, I called him back and I was like, I'm in if you get an office. I remember saying that, which is sounds so strange with today's context. I was like, if you're not a fit, and he, he promised me an office. I, I don't think we actually had an office on the first day, but but we did soon after. Somewhere along the line, he, he just, he literally took me out to meet who's who in the, in the industry and 
including to Intersolar Munich, which was uh, quite mm. the big show back then. And uh, well, that, that, that changed my life. Yeah that, yeah, that was my baptism. Baptism It'll, by fire, for sure. Quick, funny story, just for, for yeah. true uh, historians of solar. Um, many of you guys might have heard of a, a gentleman named Anthony Prayer. And one of the guys, he, he was very big in BIPV and, and some other things before that. Um, really one of the grandfathers of, of solar growing up in, in that late part of the decade. And Robert took me to dinner um, with him. And Anthony was great and gave me um, a lot of good advice. But I remember getting on a plane to go to Munich. And there's this little documentary. I think it was on like United. I think we were flying United. First, it had Dr. Shi at Suntech. And the second guy on there was Anthony Pereira chatting away. <sighs> Robert's like, see who I took you to meet? We had some help from, uh, from the media studies industry. That's amazing. So talk a bit about, you know, we talked about your baptism, but the trial by fire, like the process of actually beginning to really understand the solar industry. Did, were you just in love with this idea of climate change when you joined? And, or was that a process as well uh, as you got indoctrinated into the solar industry? Yeah, Nico, I wish I could tell you it was all about the environment. And you know, if I go back to my childhood, I, the environment was always important to me. And I remember being uber focused on the ozone issue as a kid. And I think you, you probably remember that in recycling, but never really envisioned it as a career path. Um, and and I wish I could tell you I joined solar because I wanted to to help you know contribute to the the cause. And but that wasn't the case. I thought it was a good business and a good business that was poised to grow for a lot of the right reason. And, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to work with some of the, the greatest people I, I've ever met and still do. Um, but, but many of those kind of instilled kind of the solar cause in me very early. And um, I feel, um, you know, I, I have come full circle and I think I do do this to make a difference now, but that's not what helped me take my first step. You mentioned working with incredible people. One of the things I remember was, this general feeling in that 2009 to like 2014 era that the Yingli talent pool was just so deep and profound. <laughs> and if you look across the industry now, it's all people like yourself that are in VP and higher roles, like C-suite roles, founder roles. Do you remember some of those early hires that really for you were like, holy moly, like the talent here is really good. And what constituted like what you guys were looking for to build that team? Conversations maybe that you had with Robert, et cetera. I remember every single one and, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, we, what you don't see from the outside, it was a ton of fun. At least it was for me. You know, I think we took a very different approach. Um, a lot of folks were out there hiring probably more established sales folks. We really wanted, we knew it'd be hard and we made a, and, and we knew there was no playbook to run out here yet. Nobody had sold solar panels at, at, at the scale that we were envisioning we could sell them at. So we, we were really targeting smart, very smart, young in their career, folks that, that have a ton of passion. And we, we came up, yeah, I don't think, think Robert would agree with me that, that we came up with that, that first bunch of folks, we exceeded every expectation. And, you know, since, yeah. since we brought them up, Gabe Wattner, Barry Ween, Nick Morris, I mean, the, the, these guys yeah, were amazing. I think Helena um, was one of your early hires too, right? Helena Kimball. Yeah. Helena was, she's amazing. She's, she's running her own company now. I, I learned yeah. a ton from Helena. Well, speaking of learning a ton, you know, process of evolving our careers often is moving from sort of life lesson to life lesson. Uh, as I recall, when we previously discussed, there was a, you've, you've sort of compartmentalized and bucketed the things you learned in each step along the way. Talk a bit about the learning uh, lessons beyond Yingli at K-Road and NatGrid that led you to C-Power ultimately. 
Yeah. Well, it's it's been a quite a journey. I think even going back to Yingli, the, the first real focus that I, I wanted to do was break into the utility industry and utility scale yeah. solar. Um, and, and that's just, you know, these are things that were at the time, 20 megawatts, 30 megawatts. I remember when we sold our first hundred megawatt job and, and that was big and we invested in, again, that was, you know, we, we helped tee up that shot, but, but that engineering team was super strong. The, the performance guarantees we were giving at the time, I think we're, we're ahead of most and, and quite advanced, but I always kind of wanted to stay I was always looking to that next problem. And, you know, storage was really important to me. I ran corporate development for a while for Yingli. It wasn't where they interest, were interested for, for good reason in retrospect, but joined K-Road and really pursued um, storage. We had the uh, the investment probably most famous for uh, green charge networks at the time. Mm-hmm. It was great investment and a great team, great product. And, you know, they still live. They were eventually bought by NG. I think the big lesson I learned there was it's really hard to scale a energy solution to a CNI audience. And, and that, that eventually was a big reason for me to come in over to, to C power um, because it has a, a scaled solution that that's scaled, you know, we're, we're at about 5.3 gigawatts now, which is it's quite big, but going back, um, you know, eventually that, that kind of arc took me to um, well, storage is needs to, what do I do next? And, and I really thought a utility um, could be a great, platform still do. And, and we could have a long conversation on what's good and bad. And But the people at National Grid were good people with good intent and, and really good plans and went over there and, and um, wanted to build kind of something along the lines of where we're building at C-Power, but using these same DERs that are out there to balance the grid or, you know, um, and, and keep the grid balanced to kind of prepare for these high renewable penetration scenarios. And in any case, um, National Grid was great. We did a lot of really good things. Uh, we partnered with Sunrun in a variety of ways, invested there, um, partnered, um, you know, made some early like, venture-type investments in companies like Impala. was really putting those pieces together. But what I, the challenge there and maybe the good learning is it's really hard to get a large organization aligned around one principle and maybe not the best platform to change the world, even if the fundamentals are solid. And you know, around that time is, is when I was realizing that and, and we found uh, Power. I, I, I've um, took a look at them when, when they were up for sale um, uh, the last go around with uh, where LS Power purchased them. And I, I really love the company. And, you know, long story short, it just it just kind of clicked for me that this is the they've solved that customer problem. We could find new solutions. We could build technology. They had technology, but we could build on this. But but they've already done the hard part. Let me, you know, if I think some of the the greatest value I could do as, as an individual is helping take some of the, the raw talents that's here and, and kind of point it in where I, I see the needs going as, as we work towards the grid transition. But make no mistake, in, in all these jobs, I've still stood on the shoulders of giants. Um, and that's, that, that's really the truth. You know, one of the things that I've gleaned from our conversations and in particular, the time at NatGrid and, and working for utility is at times slow and sluggish. Uh, but you got to invest in one of the landmark deals in our industry, 200 megawatts of residential solar assets, 100 million in equity to Sunrun from National Grid, particularly to scale for the first time really in our industry, solar plus storage, right? That ability to add value, as you've put it, value to the customer and value to the grid from the utility side. And what I see, and maybe you would want to 
reflect on or comment on this is a parallel going back to the work at Yingli and K-Road of still want to figure out, crack that nut for what we all see as the big, uh, the 800 pound grill in the room, which is this giant commercial industrial sector that, that we've had a hard time really providing value to those customers using advanced technology. How would you compare maybe the Sunrun transaction with National Grid to, and what you saw as possible there leveraging technology to what you see, what you saw happening in CNI and, and where C Power began to show a lot of interest for you, or maybe some, some similarities? You know, first, I, I don't think it's a one or the other type of game. This is not a, a zero sum game where, where Sunrun wins and, wins and C Power loses or, or vice versa. It, it, there's a lot of room. And to be honest, we, you know, we, we work with Sonova today and similar. Um, you know, we, there's a lot of value that 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 C Power brings, but but reflecting on that, and, and I have all the the respect in the world for Sunrun to be clear. But at some point, I realized a heterogeneous portfolio is probably preferable to a homogeneous portfolio. So I think anyone who has multiple solutions could could really start to solve multiple problems. So it, it that goes for a technology thing um, aspect, whether it's storage and solar plus storage and and other technologies to fill. You know that. The sun's not shining. I guess you have the battery anyway, but but you probably get the point that there's a, a a big curve to fill in, and certain things are better suited to hit certain times. The other part is the time of day, right? And, you know, if you look at a grid operator's problem, take California, the duck curve. I, I imagine most of your your warriors out there are, are pretty well acquainted. Um, when does it start? Usually around four o'clock. That when I say start, the the ramp of the duck's neck and it starts around four. Who comes in? Delivers at four. A lot of CNI loaded most recent five, six, seven. Same thing, but but after that, in many regions, CNI load starts waning. Where's the where do these folks go? They go home. So what happens? You put resi. So it's not only this technology thing, but just actually occurrence. So we could let grid operators put these pieces together, or we could put it together for them. And I think different grid operators will make different choices. But I think simplifying it for the grid operator is a, a huge opportunity that we've we've only really begun to tap it at CPO. I want to dive a little bit deeper into uh, into C Power and for folks that are just completely unfamiliar. But before I do that, I have a quick question for you. I don't know if I've ever asked you this. What career path did you not go down, but always thought you would? Well, at the beginning, I, I kind of mentioned that I accept my my buoy out there five years or so and go down. And and I have been kind of following this arc around problems and been in energy for the last fifteen years. So I don't really have any regrets there. And um, Certainly, I'm happy that I left engineering. To, and, I, and I'm not saying this because I know where your heart is, but but my heart has always been left a little in solar. So I, I don't know if if I'd say I regret it because I, I think I'm doing good for solar by what I'm doing too. But I solar was fun. I miss those days of growing, those early days of solar and growing Yingli and, and others. And I so if I did it all again, I might linger a little more in, in those years. Interesting. Interesting answer. But I don't know if I expected that one. We're definitely going to tie back to renewables in a moment. Tell me something, Matthew, that is true for you that maybe very few people agree with you on. Where do you see the world through a slightly different lens? You know, I'm sure there, there's folks on, on all sides of this, but I, I think many folks out there put a little too much faith in, in market va- what market valuation is at the moment, consensus views, forecasts. And I think it is that way because it's, it's almost uh, it gives a sense of security. Um, but, but I think it's a false sense of security for, for early ideas where I've spent a, a lot of my time. And by the time you get around to consensus, market consensus and, and around, you know, much of those value pools from a business perspective are already spoken for and it, it's hard to break in. And 
I've always tried to live in on focusing on the, the fundamentals. What is the customer needs? What problem are we solving? Not what, but some very smart guy over there who hasn't spent a lot of time in this sector yet is, is placed on value. And I have a fundamental view of forecasts that, that all forecasts are precisely wrong. That's not to say they don't have value. Are precisely but wrong. It, yes. The more precision you take on your forecast, uh, the more wronger you will be. Um, or, or the more I'm going to use that one again. Be. That's so good. All forecasts are precisely yeah. wrong. Yeah. Directionally correct often. And, and they have their value for sure. But but you you don't build businesses on forecasts. We've talked about this before on the show. What's really interesting is that, and this isn't to knock at all any of the research firms that provide the data, but no matter how smart you are, how, about how well you know your market, primary alpha research, you can't build a business deck for new territory expansion without a nod to a report from some third party that validates your numbers. And lo and behold, the funny part is like when I was at Trina, I'm sure this happened with you, Yingli, you have to use a report that like in certain cases, like you're 50% of the alpha data that they're using for the region that you're trying to get them to validate because they're you're the person they've been calling all these years. <laughs> I remember having an argument with uh, a forecaster who was very big at the time, not, not around in its current form anymore, but around the 1603 safe harbor. I was like, guys, we need to get more shipments from China. I need to show them a higher forecast because we for anyone who doesn't remember that time, there was a trade. Well, the ITC was a grant for the 1603 and it could be paid in a grant. And there was a window where it expired. So everybody wanted to get it in because it made the financing simpler. So it was a huge pull in demand. But it wasn't captured in a lot of these need forecasts. And I was just arguing, you need to change your forecast. And they're like, well, we agree with you. But and I was like, you need to change it. <laughs> like it yeah, finally, they did. Um, I was so happy when they did. Like, I, I don't think I ever sent Christmas cookies or something. But, <laughs> but, but uh, I think the individual would remember the conversation. If you're out there, thank you. That's awesome. We're paying it forward right now. All forecasts are precisely wrong unless you can influence them to be right. <laughs> so they, they have their value. I just want to don't don't accept. Don't be surprised when the forecast isn't right. And I don't think most forecasters think they're spot on either. Um, I think they're a really good way to put to quantify uh, the trends you see putting out there. But you have to remember it's directional. It don't take too much security in in a number. Well, folks have been patiently hanging on to little droppings here and there about C power, and I don't often like use at the beginning a chance to just say, "Hey, here's what my company does." But I think it bears mentioning since most of the folks probably haven't heard directly about C power. Kind of like when we had. Voltus and others on like it's a different tangential beneficial sector for us to really understand DERs. But give me a, an understanding at a thirty thousand foot of what C Power does, and I'm curious through the lens of like uh, of what your touch points were with C Power, where you first learned about what the company really does, why it excites you, and you mentioned some stuff even about stuff they were doing that nobody even knows about that was that, that was worth you know, worth uh, sort of talking to the industry about. I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, maybe just to take the first question first, C-Power monetizes the value of our customers' DERs. Our customers are primarily CNI, not not exclusively. There is a residential segment we address, but um Can but I just monetize- pause you for a second? So monetizing the value of their DERs, their distributed energy resources, what's an example of a DER that for somebody that's yeah, completely- perfect. Yes, I was going to go. We, we, I think it's always important when talking about DERs to define DERs. So it's a great question. Um, 
DER is, if anyone's not familiar, distributed energy resources. Um, but what we mean by DER when we say it, and many mean, is any um, type of device or asset that generates, consumes, or stores electricity that could respond to a signal. So pretty much anything could be a DER if able, enabled with the right technology. Typically, oh, it should be located in the distribution network and where CPower focuses is behind the meter. And if anybody doesn't know what that means behind the meter? Um, in your home or your business. Gotcha. On the customer side of the meter that would then be charged through some utility rate rather than directly wholesale to the utility. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. That's a great definition, by the way. I've, I've, I've heard a bunch of definitions. I think you nailed it. Thanks. It's uh. We talk about DERs a lot. (laughs) Um, And so what C-Power does, each one of these DERs has kind of two value streams. And one one way to look at it anyway, it has a value to that that meter or to that that customer in terms of bill savings or um, perhaps resiliency, like a battery. You you could move Mm -hmm. your demand, lower your demand charges or or keep your power on if, if you lose power for a few hours. But it also has, and sometimes um, you know, less talked about, it has value to the grid. Battery is a great example. You know, if the grid needs power and you don't need it on site, you could use that to do all sorts of things. And um, it could be capacity, but it could also be ancillary services like frequency or, or even synchronous reserve. So it's a great framework. Our business is kind of focused on the latter point, uh, on, on monetizing that grid value. So a lot of these projects are, are installed on their customer value, their bill savings value, resiliency, or whatever the customer values, but we help boost the economics on these projects. Um, if you're a project, some of these, we just help companies make money by, by modulating their demand. Right. So demand response is one form. It's a very old, old school, traditional format of way of thinking about DERs. We won't go really far down the rabbit hole there, but there's a mix of technology measuring and sort of understanding signals. But I think one of the things that might be hard for folks that aren't in this world particularly to understand is how do you have the the privilege or the right to do this, right? Like homeowners are struggling right now with net energy metering and getting the ability to get a, a credit back on their bill. Yet you're saying that any excess they produce, you can like sell and optimize and monetize in the, in the, in the business uh, or in the network. Is this something that's regionally focused? Like what is the legislation or, or regulation that allows you to do this? Yeah, it's, um, you know, probably one of the big things that that's changed for demand response and, and what really evolved into DER monetization and happy to, to chat about that involvement. But before it was um, FERC 745, right, where the Supreme Court actually weighed in and said, yes, you know, um, FERC was right. They have control. Um, they, they could um, essentially they said you could aggregate assets and, and sell that into the wholesale markets. You know, that, that's not to say those are the only markets. There's also utility markets. Um, there's, there's several different flavors and I'm happy to unpack that a bit as well. But it, it is a very accepted product and um, it, it's a very sensible product. I mean, if you think about what this is at the, in its core, um, maybe an analogy I use often is if, I don't know about by you, but by me, July 4th traffic really sucks. There's always a lot of traffic and Somebody said, hey, we want to build for Brooklyn um, a highway where we got rid of all the traffic, no traffic on July 4th. You'd wind up with a hundred lane something highway that was 20% used at, at most times, right? And it would be pretty pretty asinine of a uh, 
kind of proposal because now you've built over half the neighborhood just to build the road. And, you know, it's really bad use of resources for that one day a year. So the essential thing is we could pay you to take a different type of transportation. You could pay you to stay home, to leave later. We could coordinate how you leave on your car, but let's let's spend our money there and we could do it for a fraction of the price of a, um, and inconvenience of building a hundred lane highway. And maybe we keep it to six lanes or something. Um, right. Does that make sense? Yep. That's a great example. And what I'm thinking back on is the work that you guys did with Sunrun. I'm not sure if I have asked this direct question. Were you involved in their original bid into the the New England ISO where they basically were able to monetize the storage assets that they had aggregated among their customers? Yeah, there was a, um, this goes back to my national grid days, um, but there was a, um, we, had, we had a partnership with Sunrun and National Grid, the unregulated side of National Grid, I should add. And it had a few facets. Um, it had a, a investment into a fairly large residential portfolio. We did some work on the marketing side to really explore um, the, the value of National Grid's unregulated brand. And we we worked to kind of first explore and, and then help build out um, that, that grid services business. And that, that was all very public at the time. But um, but yeah, I, at one point I had, uh, I think, three or four folks on my team um, actually working out of uh, Sunrun San Francisco office. Um, and it, it was a really good partnership. The folks at Sunrun were were super forward thinking, I think, especially in retrospect, looking back. And, and I think um, they've done a great job of really building that business since National Grid's been involved, but I'm, I'm very yeah. proud of that. Yeah. I, I guess the core of the question was, is this similar to that, where basically you get customers to allow you to aggregate their, I mean, it could be individual if it's big enough, but you're essentially aggregating enough demand that you can shift that demand on the grid and you can optimize how it's distributed back to the utility or consumed, et cetera? Well, there's very similar aspects. I would say that's a, a small segment of what C-Power does now. A lot of what we do is putting big portfolios together, taking lots mm. of little pixels and putting them together, sometimes uh, very often technology-aided to kind of build the right shape and put it together. But we also help folks kind of put their individual assets right in when, when they're large enough or when that works. And we also work into the, with into the wholesale market, into the wholesale market or, or utility, mm-hmm. right? Okay. We work, um, we, the wholesale market is, is a very, you know, it has its own mm-hmm. pros and its cons as a participant. Uh, we, we like yeah. the pros. It's, it's an open market. Everyone could compete. And I think we're very cost competitive typically there in terms on the grid side, um, for customers. And it's also, yeah, it's, it's, you know, you, you know, you're going to have access if you do the right thing. Um, there's this other utilities, some utility programs look a lot like that, except um, instead of it really being driven, pricing being driven by market forces is probably more regulators often. But then you even have utilities where you go out and you bid kind of RFPs for exclusive rights to offer this service in their territory. But so you, you kind of, you, either you compete in their program or you compete for their program. Somewhere you're going to compete. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow 
by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Did you know that your maintenance strategy could be responsible for your solar project operating at a whopping 6% annual production loss? Let our friends at 60 Hertz help. 60 Hertz economizes your O&M expenses by composing complex data feeds and turning your data acquisition system alerts noise into harmony. With 60 Hertz, your teams remain alerted with institutionalized workflows and automatically generate work orders to get the jobs done. Learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash 60 Hertz. That's 60-H-E-R-T-Z. I've heard you say terminology that I want to unpack a little bit and really understand uh, that the work you're doing is at the intersection of the grid and the customer. And while I can intuit on the surface what that might mean, would you help me understand more profoundly what you are implying there? You know, if you looked at sea power in kind of a traditional manner, our customers are actually our suppliers. We aggregate them together to supply a grid operator, the capacity, ancillary services, or whatever product we're, we're talking about. However, where we actually, where the competition is, is really more on our supplier side. And we long, long before I showed up, adopted the name customer for that. And, um, but, you know, when we sit, if you looked at a, um, you know, very simple schematic on, on one side, you have the grid and the other side, you have the customer. They don't talk so well to each other unaided for, for various reasons and not to anyone's fault. It's just not, you know, most, there's a lot of nodes to talk to there. You know, not, I don't mean from a technical standpoint, but what we do is we kind of sit in between them. And it's a really good place to sit right now is, you know, on the grid side, there's a growing need for flexibility, which is ultimately what we provide. And, and on the customer side, there's increased adoption of DERs, which provide flexibility. So if you look on the left, it's growing. If you look on the right, it's growing. And, and it's, it's really a huge opportunity there that, that I encourage others to, to get into and start chipping away at. But, um, but we, we, we feel we're pretty well positioned. Yeah. Execution is what matters. Uh, well, I often ask myself, okay, I understand somebody, you know, big, let's call it big box retailer or big manufacturing facility has not only renewables on the roof, but variable frequency drives. And they have a whole bunch of ways that power can be harnessed and, and sort of moved around. But ultimately this is electrons and electrons are moved through technology. How is technology changing to in- enable this optimization? What technology is really, it, what is it really doing for DER adoption? Yeah, well, technology has is, is really been um, pivotal. I would say that technology is all here now is maybe how, how we're leveraging technology, but, but maybe let's go back. You mentioned demand response earlier and, and you said there's mixed feelings. I can't remember the exact comments, but it, it, it kind of implied it's old, which is fair, which is how a lot of people think about it. And, you know, I don't certainly don't want to get into semantics of what's demand response because much of this is demand response still. Uh, you know, maybe, well, since I opened that can of worms, maybe the big difference is kind of twofold. One, folks often you think of demand response as only capacity. So when you start adding other services, I, I actually consider demand response to the whole suite of services already. But but I understand that, that you know, I understand how folks view it. The other is, is we're starting to find programs where you could actually inject into the grid from a behind the meter asset, say a battery or a generator or something, which is not demand response anymore. Now, now you're a generator, you're a proper generator. But, but really, what's changed? You people have this like picture in their head of of a bunch of like a phone bank picking up the phone. It's time for you to turn off your elevator or send your factory shift home. And 
I don't want to say that's never happened. And there's some programs that, that do work well with that. Like if you're trying to avoid the summer peak, but, but the need of, of these demand side services have really evolved over time. Um, and it's some of these programs dispatch 60 times a year, right? And, you know, every, every weekday in the summer, essentially. And you really, and that, that's solar or solar and renewables, right? You know, solar is, I love solar to death. I think I've established this here, but it's, it's an amazingly good energy asset. It's not dispatchable. It's not a great capacity asset at all. We should go deeper into this later, but, um, but you need to confirm that you, you, you might need to dispatch 60 times a, a day. And that's really where it's going. And now you have this. So going back to your question, how has technology changed? Um, it's, it's a few different ways. Um, it, it's first, we were doing automated response, if you look. So we went from phone banks back in 2000, whatever, two, three, four. And then you started seeing automated dispatch. Someone had the clever idea of, hey, you could, you could, you have a generator, right? And that generator could lower load. And now I could automatically dispatch that generator. Oh yeah, wait, folks, loads hooked up to a BMS or building management system. I could dispatch the, the BMS automatically and we move to automation. And that's where technology kind of sat in like the two, 2010s. What's happening now is you have another layer on top of that, which is what I would refer to as optimization. It's a tricky one because a lot of folks just say we optimize, but, but the real question to ask those folks are, what are you optimizing? From CPower's perspective, there's it, kind of three levels um, that we work at. The first level is, is kind of our, our portfolio, which, which still creates value for the customer. But imagine you have a, a customer that has a, a thermostat customer, very summer heavy in, in you know, AC heavy types of load. They want to participate in a program that works all year round. So we have pretty advanced you know, optimization algorithms that would come back and say, oh, well, we have a winter heavy industrial customer here. Let's pair it and put it together. It doesn't have to be a season. It could be a day, an hour or anything. But, but we, the way we look at this is we, we draw like a Tetris box. Uh, you know, and you can see these things come together to fit that right curve on the program. Second type of optimization you, you see all the time, um, DERMS, DERMS Plus, or these things that utilities use um, to to kind of balance their own grid and how are you unlocking those DERs. And the last one here is um, site-level optimization, which I, I think is, is quite interesting and something that CPower is really leading in right now. And we talked about those two revenue streams from a DER. On one side, you have the bill savings and the customer value. On the other side, you have the grid value. Well, we've, we've developed software that will optimize across a series of DERs behind one meter to produce the, the greatest amount of value. Typically, that's economic value. So if you have a microgrid, which is probably the most complex, complex case of this, it's called a generator and a battery and a solar panel. In one hour, that generator might sit still, right? The best thing, because you, you can only use a generator for so many hours, usually several hundred, um, before you, you could blow past emissions. And that battery might be buzzing away in, um, for demand charge management, running a peak. Six hours later in the same day, maybe prices really spike, it's really hot. You will then dispatch that generator into, say, um, an economic program and put that battery into sync reserve or you know whatever it is. And it's just looking hour by hour, asset by asset, and, and finding out that maximum value, which is big today, but it's going to be, when I look at what's going to drive future growth and from a technology perspective, I, I think that's the answer that a, a lot of um, developers, project owners really need. Okay, it's totally fine. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to hold uh, this against you. Just hit rewind twice, maybe three or four times, 
you back it up two, three minutes, you're going to want to listen to that again. <laughs> All right. You're totally in the comfort of your own home or wherever you are. Nobody's going to know that you had to go back and listen again. I would encourage you to do so because that is podcast gold. You'll want to know for whatever fun party trick it might serve, but mostly so how you, so that you can better understand how the industry is moving towards uh, the evolution of, of the migration of electrons. You can't pay for what Matthew just told you unless you're one of his prospective customers. So I just want you to, if you're listening, and I think you are, good, you're back now. You, you've already fast forward. You've already reversed through all of that. Okay, cool. They're back with us now, Matthew. Their brain is buzzing because we've got a basic masterclass on DERMS, um, in particular site-level optimization, which is not even a term that I had in my cranium until this conversation. Can you talk to me about the, uh, the growing value of flexibility? You mentioned it earlier and that grids are value and flexibility. What exactly did I mean by that? Well, you know, it's kind of a few different drivers here. Um, you, you have your, your kind of macro drivers, supply and demand type of things. On the demand side, um, you have things like solar. And we talked a little bit about uh, you know, um, the intermittency of solar, but wind's the same way. But, but if you add that up, the grid needs more flexibility. Um, and what I mean by flexibility is, is filling those gaps when the sun ain't shining or the wind ain't blowing. And that's super important. And that's on the demand side. Separate than that, we have other trends happening, right? We have EV deployments, people accepting more EVs. People, they don't know where the EVs are going to go. Maybe we will in five years, you know, and forecasters will get better and better and more precise, but, but it's uncertainty on the demand side. On weather, extreme weather events, we're getting more and more hotter summers, right? We, we already blew past the, the previous ERCOT um, peak that was projected last week or the week before. So on the demand side, you have all this uncertainty and grids don't do too well with uncertainty. They, they like to be there. Um, and now on the supply side, we, we have retiring assets. A lot of assets that, that used to kind of provide these kind of flexible services are, are being pushed out for good reasons, right? Either because they're old or they're dirty and whatever reason, and that's a different topic, but there's less out there. So you put those two together and, you know, there's this huge value driver right now for, for being able to provide that. And how are we going to provide that, right? The first thing that you and many others are probably thinking are big batteries. It's going to happen. It's a big part of the energy solution, but, it, but it's not the only part of the energy solution out there. So it's, it's really important, you know, what, what does these DERs that I keep talking about bring to here? They, they bring locality. They're quick to deploy. It doesn't take three years to develop a a DER monetization project. It takes six months, three months. Um, so if, if somebody buys a few more Tesla, whatever, Model Ys for your, your cul-de-sac and their utility can't do it, we could solve that quickly. It doesn't make sense to put a battery far away. That's not to say batteries won't be big. Just to be clear, big batteries in the grid are here to stay. What we need to do is, is get um, DERs more in this conversation. To that point, if I've got five more Teslas in my neighborhood, how do DERs resolve that uh, sort of end of the line uh, constraint on delivery? Like, and what kind of DERs particularly? Like, are we talking about like locating smaller batteries at the end of nodes or like? Those Teslas themselves are a DER if you control their load. If we go back to their definition, they consume energy. And if Tesla will uh, let us. If Tesla will let us, that's true. But but something's charging them. You could control that too. And, and I'm certain that Tesla has, has ambitions to let us at some point, or at least hopeful. So you could solve the same problem. Hey, instead of all five of you coming home, we'll all come home from work at 6, 30, 7, 8, whenever you get home and plugging at the same time. 
I could ask you all, well, hey, Nico, could you plug in at five and I'll plug in at six? And, and that, but that would never work at scale. So what you, you could just simply modulate those charges and have everybody ready to leave the next morning. Um, and that would be the simplest example. But I could do that with any right. device, really, right? I could change my fridge, 10 fridges or, you know. I there you know go. Um, so, there you go. In a truly IoT and connected world, we have the ability through devices like, uh, you know, I'm not sure how different or not uh, your products are from a software perspective from, you know, hardware devices like Span and the software they're developing. but you know, they're in the home. That's an example of a way that we can see an act like an actual distribution load in the home and begin to begin to send signals, receive signals from homeowners uh, about how they can participate in what we expect to be a virtuous cycle in, in the grid, as it were, of um, transactive power. Yeah. And maybe just to quickly answer your question, like we, we don't control the things you know, span could control in the home. We connect span to the market. Right? We could connect connect span IO to the market or any DER to the market. So that's that's kind of where we play in the value chain. There is a time where we do do some controls like with, with site level optimization. That is controls. And that's designed for kind of big, you know, industrial applications of several megawatts. But but on the residential side, we we open up the markets for these device guys. Matthew, one of the things that I've I've heard from frankly other podcasts listening to you and John talk a bit about your position in the market that you have the highest rated customer experience in the industry. And I'm I'm curious, A, what industry, B, how's that measured? C, why does it matter? What does it really mean? Yeah, well, the, love to talk about this. I think customer is really core to what we do at C-Power. I know everyone says that and we mean it, but but what does it mean is, is equally important because it doesn't mean much if you don't know. Um, I, I guess there's a few ways we look at it. Our retention rates are, are sky high, which is great. But the most common way we use is something called an MPS or a net promoter score. And many of you in, in marketing are, are probably familiar, but for those who are, aren't, it's a survey based, essentially, would you recommend this product to a friend? And, and you look at your promoters and your detractors. So I think the, don't quote me on the formula, but I believe the you measure from one to 10 and the nines and tens are promoters and your one, twos, threes, and fours are all detractors. So there's more detractor, anyone who, who rates it. And then you you look at that post. So you at the end, you get a negative 100 to positive 100 score. So that 200 point swing. And most utilities are, are hovering somewhere near zero plus or minus. I don't, there's certainly some that outperform and some that underperform um, to give you an idea. Um, and Netflix or... Uh, God, there's there's an Apple or you know these high performing consumer brands are usually somewhere north of fifty, south of hundred. C um, Power is right right up there with those uh, with those brands, which is astonishing for a business to business energy business. Um, so uh, that was a huge part of uh, my excitement to to be at C Power is you, you could really see it in the numbers. Thanks for explaining that. And is the industry broadly the the electric utility industry? Well, just the electric, the energy industry the, in general. Okay. Um, but but I mean, this is a common a common uh, customer um, satisfaction metric across industries. Um, C power more and more you're seeing this come to our industry, but we've been we've been monitoring it for a while and, and really watching it grow as we've done corrective steps and. You know, when you're looking at it, you really just want to make sure that enough of the customer population is uh, is um, is responding to to make it significant. And, and in our case, it is. And 
for those of you who are on M&A side, you, you really want to make sure that the, that those customers aren't cherry picked. In our case, it's it's um, it goes out to every customer, so it's certainly not cherry. Yeah. I'll link to, for those who aren't familiar with Net Promoter Score, a, a website called Customer Gauge that actually explains the NPS really well, uh, how to calculate it, gives a lot of great visuals. Detractors are one to six, actually. Promoters are nine and 10. One to six. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's really hard yeah. to get a good Net Promoter Score. And I'm glad that, you know, we didn't rehearse this this question, lest folks think that, that, that that's how this works. But but it's it's often, you know, I hear folks throw out these these personal accolades of like, oh, highest customer experience in the industry. And I often want to just try to figure out like, what's the terra firma here um, or how are they measuring it? Right. And I'm glad to hear that, um, that C-Power has taken a very disciplined uh, marketing approach to it. But I want to ask a question more related again to our friends in the renewables industry. H- how does this all tie back to renewables? You mentioned earlier, you know, we should dig into how do you firm it up and make it dispatchable? How do DERMs and DERs tie back to renewables? Let's come full circle for our solar warriors. Well, I think that's the question du jour and how does, and this is why I'm here, right? And let's take a a scenario. We we talked about firming renewables, but up in New England, there's a program that's part of the connected solutions called Daily Dispatch. Um, This is part of, it's actually a utility program by National Grid and, and Eversource, but really designed there to make sure the grid keeps functioning during summer peaks, uh, sorry, during the summer. Um, but a lot of that is driven by renewables. And, and, you know, if you looked at kind of past programs, they were driven around air conditioning load. But here you need to dispatch 60 times in a summer. And what you're doing is when you get those gaps or they even not, you know, it, it could be, it doesn't have to be solar, but these programs are being designed to fill in these gaps when the grid needs it. So if you have a solar plant that's getting a little covered by clouds here and there, or tearing down at nighttime and the grid is gearing up as people come home from work, something needs to fill in that gap. Mm -hmm. And and that's where we are are doing it today and are going to be doing it increasingly more as renewables continue to penetrate. So this is part of the, you know, going back to the dynamic grid, this is the answer to help renewables be firm and, and why the cheap energy and renewables will, you know, it allows us to, access to clean and cheap energy renewables, but keep the grid running in a way we're accustomed. Sort of turn towards, sort of towards home base here. We talked a lot about your early career, how you found your way into clean energy and moving electrons around. You know, you spent a lot of time with guys like Robert Petrino, who in many of our minds is one of those kind of OG folks that is a success story in the industry, Brian Yingli running JA now. When you think about the time, your time in renewables broadly, what comes to mind for you from, uh, from the perspective of a success story or something, maybe somebody who doesn't know necessarily much about the industry, what would you point them to and say, Hey, you should go like, take a look at this person or company or like, what, what comes to mind for you as a success story? You know, we, well, we talked about Sunrun and I, I think Sunrun's a really interesting success story. You know, they, they came in, they were number two for the longest time to Solar City, but, but they really took their own path to this. And, and I'm very proud of them because it, when I first started talking to them, everybody saw them as a solar installer or a solar player. And, and what I always hoped for them to do was to become a, a residential energy solution provider. And now they've done, um, you know, certainly done batteries, but what I was most proud of, of them is when they announced the uh, the uh, 
the Ford 150 Lightning um, charging. And, and, you know, they're really starting to coalesce around the home. And, and that's not to say that you can't beat Sunrun and that there's no one out there, but but I, I think that's a, a really good, you know, they had the, the good fortune and wisdom to to not be myopic and define themselves as the residential energy solution, not as by one technology. Yeah. We've talked about it offline, the great job that Mary is doing running Sunrun now. Lynn, if you're listening, I'm first of all really uh, honored that you do listen to Suncast. And uh, if you are, then you'll know that I want you on the show still, even though you're not running Sunrun day to day. So Lynn, please come on Suncast. (laughs) Lynn has a lot of wisdom to share. She really does. She really does. Lynn Jurek, founder, one of the co-founders of Sunrun and CEO, took it to public and ran it for, I mean, really created... Uh, from a leadership perspective, what is the first truly successful publicly run distributed utility in the sense of like using renewables as the core operating system, right? Like that, it's a, it's a tremendous story to be told uh, and still many more chapters to to write. I'm curious though, from your own perspective, working with companies uh, that have been named, some that have not been named, uh, what are some of the key lessons or takeaways from the mentors that you've met along the way, like the Robert Petrinos. Oh man, Nico, I've had so much help here. <laughs> um, and, and I said, I stood on the shoulder of giants and I mean it, you know, maybe very early in my career. Um, my first CEO back in my engineering days, uh, I actually spent some time doing design engineer, but, but he really taught me to be humble. I remember being at a meeting and telling our chief engineer that he was wrong. And I remember my CEO stopping the meeting to my horror, I was very young and insecure at the time saying, people are not wrong here, Matthew. <laughs> we have different views. I still was right, but that wasn't the point. The point was that that's not how you talk to people and treat people, especially when you're right. You know, uh, Daniel Westerman, who I worked um, with at Grid for a while, um, is now the, uh, the CEO of the Australian Grid Operator, but he taught me to think big and, and have confidence in your ideas. They're good. And do it. And I, I can't tell you how well that word worked. Uh, also a grid, um, batter con, um, servitude leadership. Your job as a leader is to really block and tackle out in front of your team. Let them run in and score the touchdown. That's good. We all look good. We all win if that happens. But but that's really the job as as you kind of move up in the ranks is, is to create those holes and let the team do what they were hired to do. My current CEO, John, um, he's done an amazing job really teaching me what everyone has told me my whole life, but listen to understand and not respond. And it's really easy to say, but watching John actually deliver it um, is is great. You know, I I could go on maybe a couple of famous folks, Sharon Allen. She was the um, chairman of Deloitte for a long time. I, I got a chance to meet her just in my business school years. But there's one thing I remember her saying is, if you remember one thing, she said, step out of your comfort zone. Mm. And that's just stuck with me forever. Anyway, that's cool. I won't bore you with more and more, but but we could have a much longer conversation here. Um, Not bored at all, man. I wonder, uh, oftentimes we talk so much about like the success and how success begets success. And you move to from great job to great job. Where do you look back and reflect on your career and think, man, that either was a dead end or felt like a dead end or... I kind of still beat myself up sometimes over the decision I made, but they're all learning lessons, right? I wouldn't take personally any of the things that happened in my career back. What are some examples of, of your career where you had to decide, like, do I stop digging? Did I take a left turn when I should have taken a right turn? Yeah, look, I, I agree with you. I, there's nothing I've done that I've regretted because I've learned from everything. And, and there's always some 
some good there. Sometimes I've changed too. The utility piece with National Grid, I, you know, I have very mixed feelings about leaving because um, I still think it's an amazing platform to, to drive change from. But I also, I'm not sure I was the right person to do that um, in, in the long run. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a lot of, it's a very political job in building consensus. I, I don't, there's a political aspect of building community buy-in and sort of do but here I mean in a little, um, aligning a large amount of stakeholders around the, the idea to do something, which is why you see big companies often not do many things outside of what they, they normally do. Mm. Um, I think your first CEO would have been proud of what you just said. That takes a lot of humility to say, you know, I might not have been the right, right person uh, or the right time in my career to be, to be that change maker and to, and to drive that. Uh, that ball inside and on that team. So I appreciate you being willing to being willing to say that, Matthew. You've had a lot of opportunity to see from thirty thousand foot all the way down to the you know the tactical five foot, um, the lidar, uh, all the way down to like measuring with with a with a centimeter ruler uh, on the ground here. What do you think is the huge problem that we still need to solve in the clean energy sector in particular? What's holding us back from the kind of scalable growth that you and I know is possible? Yeah, I, I think you probably know my answer here, but this is where I've been following my career around. I, I think the big problem out there is to firm renewables. And when I see these announcements mm. out in in MISO saying they may not have enough power for the summer or even ERCOT saying things on peak or CalISO, it, it really it really hurts me because I know yeah. how many DRs are out there and yeah. I know we could solve wow. that problem. That is really palpable, yeah. I also know that you... Love to follow cool tech. And sometimes I'll ask this question. Sometimes I don't, but I'm curious, what is some of the coolest tech, hopefully climate related tech that you've seen in the last uh, little while? Maybe it's eight to 12 months, maybe it's eight to 12 weeks. Yeah. You know, I don't know if this is the best tech, but it was a little gadget that got me excited that, that I cannot believe I haven't seen before this. It was on a Kickstarter campaign. It's told by a, a buddy of mine in, in, the sector, but it's, I think it's called Blip, B-L-I-P. Are, are you familiar with this, Nico? I'm not. It's kind of like a smart plug with a battery built in. So it has mm-hmm. like a, I don't remember the exact specs, but like the, the two and a half kilowatt hour battery. Is it Blip that plugs one? into your wall. Reliable smart battery for any apartment or home? Sounds sounds about right. Um, okay. I'm not sure about the terminology, but yeah, it's um, it's basically you could plug your refrigerator into it. And plug it into the wall. And then if you lose power, it could run 20, 20 or so hours, no interconnection, no anything. It's just a backup unit. And, um, and it's also, it looks kind of like a stand-up fan. If you yeah, know what I'm, I'm talking looking about, at the, just a column. Yeah. yeah. I'm looking at the link to this in the show notes for sure. This is cool. You could move it around. So I, you know, I, we have a little house upstate that loses power all the time and we're putting solar and storage on that, but we need to redo the roof and we can't find someone to do construction now. I was like, holy crap, I could just pick this up now. And look and, at this, um, it's, it's it, 800 bucks for 22.2 kilowatt hours, uh, yep. 2000 watts of, uh, of AC output. This is cool. I'm glad yeah, I, I, always, I, always, I always like to ask these questions because you never know what you'll hear, right? It's a backup power station for every home designed to help in emergencies and save money. Thank you, Blip, yeah. for creating a great Kickstarter that caught Matthew uh, caught Matthew's attention. Matthew Sachs, appreciate that, brother. Well, look, uh, as always, you are, as a listener would know, uh, I believe that leaders are readers, and I'm curious if there are any particular books that you have gifted or recommended strongly to help others hone the craft of leadership or just life skills in general. Yeah, sure. Um, there's a ton. I, I am a reader. 
I think many of these have been mentioned on your show at certain times, but but let me at least tell you why I like it. The, the prize, Daniel Jurgen, mm-hmm. that was the book where energy just clicked for me, or really the energy being the intersection of, of military. I Daniel um, on here. Yeah, oh, that'd be amazing. Military, social, economic, and, and really the power of energy is not just another industry. It is really pivotal to and does have effects in the world order. Measure what matters. It's hard to say that's like one of John Doerr book on OKRs, um, Objectives and Key Results. Hard to say it's my favorite book. It's a good read. It's, it's a great read, but, but I really like the OKR format. And I think John does an amazing job of really outlining how to use it there. And really 90 plus percent of what I read is history, often about energy and business. And mostly my, my belief is everything is cyclical or there's multiple cycles happening at once. And if I could just read enough history, I'll be able to crack that cycle. So if you, you haven't read about Sam Insole, there's the, the Merchant of Power, there's a few books about it or any of those like that. Those are essential. Just understand how, how this grew up. And it's amazing how Edison actually started the, you know, with DERs that, that were local providing one house. And we, we've kind of gone full circle back to that in, in a very strange uh, journey. Cool. I had not heard of this book, as you'll know, I'm close friends with Bill Nussie, who's studied Sam Insel deeply. Yeah. Uh, but this book, he probably has mentioned it to me, in fact, but The Merchant of Power, Sam Insel, Tom Edison, and the Creation of the Modern Metropolis uh, by a guy named John Wasik uh, from 2015. Definitely going to grab that book. That is super cool. I think it's older than 2015, though. That might be is that right. It might be the revised yeah. edition. Uh-huh. It was good. I, I've read a bunch of books on it, though. Just as long as you know the history, uh, I think is, is what's really important. I couldn't agree more. And if you're more of a podcast listener, you should definitely go over to our friend, uh, Bill Nussie, the Freeing Energy podcast. If you want our take on it, go listen in December to a really in-depth interview. There's a one-hour version, a three-hour version with Bill about his book called Freeing Energy. And he does a and then a phenomenal blog post and an episode around Sam Insel and the creation of the modern electric grid. I think that everyone in our industry should listen both to those podcasts as well as to reading his book because he, he kind of sums it up. That's great, man. Uh, I'm going to go ahead, actually for what it's worth since I've mentioned him. I'll list uh, Bill Nutt here in the for freeing energy. I've gotten so such good feedback from folks who didn't know Bill before I did that interview with him. And it, it, it's kind of opened their mind up to the possibility of our industry. For what it's worth, Nico, I just jotted it down. Oh, fantastic. Well, I think if you haven't listened to it, yeah, you really, I would really encourage you to go listen to um, the the interview. I did, we did publish, it's the only video of a full length video of the interview I've ever, I think I've ever published, but published a video on our YouTube channel as well. But, but Bill, Bill's a real, he's a real, he's a real deal thinker and his book Free Energy is worth, is worth taking the time to get your hands around. Well, where, if folks are so inclined, can they best uh, reach you, Matthew? Is it LinkedIn as I so often do? Yeah, I'd say LinkedIn, or if you're a Brooklyn native, uh, you could find me in the in the coffee shops around Brooklyn Heights. There you go. Is there a particular coffee shop I should visit when I'm next in Brooklyn? Ah, oh, they're all good. I don't want to. <laughs> there's factions here that that believe them, but I honestly just like the the quietest one. I could have a good conversation. I love it. Well, next time I'm in Brooklyn, we'll go do that. Last question of the day, as usual, Matthew. You know what's coming. Uh, let's end with our bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening? in the marketplace that perhaps nobody else is tracking. We've talked about a lot of things that are coming in the marketplace, but what's your bold prediction for the coming months and years as as we evolve this electric grid? Yeah, well, hopefully I've convinced a few or at least made a compelling case that DRs are going to play a big role. But but I think the bold prediction that's not on on a lot of folks' radar is 
you know, there's certainly a lot of DERs coming, but there are a lot of DERs out there today. Mm-hmm. And I think you folks are going to be amazed that with how little technology and times a touch of hardware and times not even how you can unlock the existing DERs that, that are sitting in your business and your home right now and how big a role that's going to play in our future. Existing DERs already connected tangentially to the grid will unlock our future capacity for flexibility and for this dynamic grid that Matthew talked about throughout this conversation. Matthew Sachs is a friend and listener of Suncast. He is a solar warrior, and he is also the SVP of strategy and business development at Power. Matthew, so excited to finally have a chance to get you in an interview here on Suncast and share your thoughts with the world. Thanks, Nico. I had a great time and look forward to continuing the discussion. All right, Solar Warriors, that is a wrap on today's conversation with my friend, Matthew Sachs at Sea Power. Matthew, I'm truly grateful for the opportunity to have time with you to learn how you are seeing our industry evolve, this dynamic view of the grid and how these DERs, distributed energy resources, truly are going to make a huge impact on the way we manage our loads, the way that we interact with the grid, the way we can offer the possibility of truly transactive energy where you and I, consumers on this grid, get to participate in the process of making and selling that electricity as well as storing it and using it. If you are eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can go find more resources and highlights from this and every other discussion along with the social media links for Matthew and all of our other guests, their book recommendations and more on the blog at mysuncast.com. And one other thing for you end of podcast listeners, that's a little Easter egg tidbit that my friend Matthew loves about the mysuncast.com website is if you scroll all the way down to the bottom, click on the search bar, it is really kind of a magic search bar and you can find any episode we've done. And why is that important? Well, as we've done about 500 episodes now in Suncast, we can only publish through the syndication platform 300. So there's a whole 200 episodes you don't even see in your podcast feed but that are ripe with opportunity. You can search in there for storage. You can search for the person's name. You can search for all kinds of stuff. Go play with it. Have fun. Go to mysuncast.com and look up Andrew Beebe from Obvious Ventures as the example that Matthew and I talked about offline. Since I know that you're going to be online, I'd love it if you would also take a moment and find the LinkedIn post that we've created for this episode and share it with someone that you believe would benefit from this knowledge. Somebody in your world is trying to figure out DERs and maybe you are as well. If that was you and you learned a ton, well then share your takeaways right there in the comments of that post on LinkedIn. And while we're in the sharing mood, would you share your opinion about Suncast in a public way that other people can find the show? You can easily do that at ratethispodcast.com forward slash S-U-N-C-A-S-T. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash Suncast. Leave us your enthusiastic five-star review so that others can see exactly why you chose to listen to this episode today. I look forward to having you back here next week as we have our Tactical Tuesdays, practical advice on building your career, and our long-form executive profiles, just like this one with Matthew Sachs, where you get to hear how the industry is being built from the driver's seat, those that are creating these companies and running them. Thanks once again, as always, to our sponsors who help make this content free to you. You can learn more about them as well as any of the offers they may have put forth here in the show. You can also learn how you could partner with us to help the Suncast tribe grow. That's at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. 
Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.